Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. It's a brand new look for the Redbox podcast. All the same features, but now with my big fat face on the logo. On today's episode, who are the big political winners and losers of 2023? The columnist's festive focus group separates the wheat from the chaff. And all this year, Lara's spirit has been counting down every general election since the Great Reform Act of 1832, while she's been in the Times archive. Today, she brings us some election lessons and pointers for what will be a big election year in 2024. And if you like what you hear here, you can join me for Politics Without the Boring Bits live on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. We start with some breaking news. More revelations about Michelle Moan, the Tory baroness at the centre of the PPE scandal. Michelle Moan now has denied trying to sabotage the sheep costumes in the nativity. I wasn't trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Uh, that, the other thing, the other thing that struck me, uh, watching Michelle Moan moan. My family have gone through hell with the media. Oh, I mean, could that be because you kept lying to the media and even threatening journalists with aggressive legal letters while they asked questions about something you knew to be true, that you were involved in the company that made all this money? Anyway, the other thing that struck me was not that we don't all have so much money that we can tuck away a spare £30 million in a trust or on the Isle of Man or hide our involvement in businesses from the public available register. No, uh, the thing that struck me watching the interview on uh, Laura Coonsberg's show yesterday on BBC One, Michelle Moniner, is her husband, Derek Bowerman's shirt. Now, this is a man with a huge amount of money, mind-boggling amounts of money. Yet his shirt looked like mine after a particularly heavy Sunday carvery. It was gaping doesn't come, come close. I was worried at one point a button might fly off and blind Laura Coonsberg. Why doesn't he buy another one? He could afford a new shirt. A shirt that fit. He could probably afford to have one made. Or he could just pop on one of the millions of gowns he sold to the British government which have never been used. The Columnists. Yeah, it's a very special treat. Normally, at this time, you hear from just two of our columnists. But all this week, we've got a Times Columnists festive focus group where we're going to get James Marriott, Robert Crampton, Alice Thompson, Matthew Bell, Libby Purvis and Manveen Rana taking us through what's happened in 2023, the highs, the lows, how they're spending Christmas, the weirdness of how some of them don't buy many Christmas presents. But today, we kick off with the political winners and losers of the year. And starting it all off, here's Alice Thompson. I've got two, if that's possible. I've got Penny Morden with her sword, because we've all forgotten her, but she really rocked it at the coronation. The sword of state, which is uh, the heaviest uh, sword. So I've been doing some press-ups to uh, (laughs) train for that. And then I've got Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, Mm. who I feel... 
uh, has had a spectacular comeback and we thought had disappeared to the country and pony clubs and really obscurity in his shepherd's hut and has now come back and is now trailing the world uh, with these dignitaries and um, may yet get another job. Right, very good. Uh, Libby, who was your political winner of the year? I think, actually, uh, I'm being controversial here, I think, I think uh, Rishi Sunak for being less repellent than anybody else at the investigation. I just wanted to start by saying how deeply sorry I am. Um, and uh, bravely standing up for himself over his Eat Out to Help Up, which was 12 feeble days in April and made no difference to anything, and he's being picked on for it. So I want to give him just a sort of, not not a large kind of winner's cup, but a kind of small... A small one. <laughs> small I'll be honest, he's, he's not saucer. a big man. He'll be happy with, a little, with a little trophy. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I saw, I, I saw last night, I saw Pandemonium, the... Um, Amanda Yanucci uh, send up of the whole four years, which there was a magnificent Rishi in that. And I think I would like to give a small, and again, I don't want to give any big wins because there haven't been any big wins. I want to give quite a small um, cup to Danny Kruger. Everything must conform at last to the imagining of John Lennon. For having written a book uh, suggesting that he has actual moral principles and everybody else ought to have some too. So that, that was kind of novel. Robert Crampton, your winner of the year. I've got three, Matt. Oh, God! Uh, Can't somebody just have one? There's little Keir Mather. I'm really looking forward to showing what a Labour MP can get done in a seat in, like Selby and Ainsley from day one. Who won the Selby by-election back in September, and I, uh, I in, had the pleasure of interviewing him. I think he's going to go far, even though he's probably going to lose his seat in the next election. Uh, there is uh, Pat McFadden, who's been popping up, on, who I know of old from, the, from his days as a Blairite apparatchik, I suppose, who's been popping up and always, always very impressive on the... Uh, TV. I'm here in Wolverhampton in support of Pat McFadden. Pat is a great guy. And there's Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, who, <laughs> was, who has just pocketed £300 million from the British taxpayer and le lectured us about the importance of the rule of law, despite having at least 10 political opponents and critics assassinated since he became president. So that's uh, he's that's pretty good going. Third, 300 million quid and, and keeps them all on high ground. Marvellous. I mean, what what a trio. What a yeah. trio. Pat McFadden, Kim Mather and Paul Kagami. Right, Matthew Bell, I assume you're going to have four winners of the year. <laughs> I've got about six, but I'll, I'll limit it to, uh, let's say, two. I think one of them must be Eddie Izzard. I'm very excited by his campaign running for Brighton in a pink uh, two-piece dress. Um, I think that's going to be very exciting. And the other one is Peter Mandelson. I think it's very exciting that he's quietly coming back, um, orchestrating uh, Labour policy from behind the scenes for the next election. So I think... If I can come back, we can come back. Those are my two ones to watch. Well, as a result, as a result of his emergence as a podcast star, of course, Peter Manson. <laughs> well, when I'm talking about podcasts, I mean, those are the other ones. Rory Stewart, you know, quietly assassinated with his new book and his brilliant podcast. And George Osborne and Ed Balls. I mean, I'm not sure about that one, but, you know... Nobody, nobody, listen, nobody listens to that <laughs> one. Nobody listens to that one. It's like GB News. Manveen, talking of winners from podcasts, Manveen Rana, <laughs> uh, who is your winner in politics I mean, I have year? to say, this game gets harder as you go around the table, because I was, I was going to go for both Cameron and Kagami, because I think they've, they've probably won at politics. But also, I, I, I think... And this this just sort of proves it. They they don't have to be winners you want. But I think Nigel Farage 
somehow has managed to get to the end of this year and people are talking about him making the again the biggest political comeback bigger than David Cameron's and the idea that he might still somehow uh, work you know sort of rule the future of the Tory party is absolutely astonishing you all laughed at me well I have to say you're not laughing now are you from a man who was sort of in the political wilderness a few months back very good. Very good. James Marriott, your political winners in 2023. Can I say the king spends his entire life waiting to be king? He's done. Does yeah. this count as politics? And he was um, finally crowned this year. And uh, he, I think, and also, you know, he was quite political uh, at the height of Rishi Sunak and the, uh, the Greek prime minister, the king wearing a, t- a tie with the Greek flag on it and then going, oh, what, this old thing? No, it was just a coincidence. <laughs> made, a, made, a spe- made a speech at COP. Yeah. Um, has a homeopathic advisor we learned today. I mean, that's pretty, you know, it's a pretty successful year. Anyway, made but... a speech at COP after being banned from doing that last year. So it feels like this, is, this has been a good year for him. That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, so that's your winners. Let's do your losers of the year now. James, you can go first. Phew. Well, okay, it's good because I've got a very obvious one, who is Nicola Sturgeon. The last few days have been obviously difficult, quite traumatic at times. Who was, you know... Beloved of centrist dads only a year ago and then had a fall from grace with dodgy caravan dealings and was arrested, which is just kind of got to be one of the remarkable downward political trajectories of our time in how suddenly it happened and how kind of unexpectedly it suddenly, you know, just sort of erupted out of nowhere. It was really fascinating to watch. Very good. Very good. Uh, Manveen, your loser of the year. Um, I mean, I, I agree with James. I think that it's like it's like a Greek tragedy, you know, the complete turn it's incredible. to start from the year, um, you know, being sort of lord and master of Orshi Pervade and suddenly being uh, arrested and uh, bringing down the party with her. Um, similarly, though, <laughs> slightly left field, but uh, I would say Prigozhin started the year pretty well. <laughs> didn't end so well for him after all um, what, with what, with dead? Dead? what with being dead <laughs> what what happened to the Wagner group <laughs> so uh, again sort of like not not a great year for him it turns out yeah well you know some some people would say starting the year alive and ending it dead <laughs> is a sign that the year has not gone well uh Matthew Bell your pick of your your loser of the year well, it would have to be Matt Hancock, because the great tragedy of his life is that he went on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here last year, revived his political career, only for the COVID inquiry to then scupper it once again. So he's gone, done the snakes and ladders of going back to the top, and now he's back at the bottom again. It's... He was, quote, loving responsibility, and to demonstrate this, took up a bat- batsman's stance outside the cabinet room and said, they bowl them at me, I knock them away. And then he had to eat uh, pigs' anuses on top of that. And then got shouted at by the SAS people as well, in a very amusing way. Uh, Robert, your loser of the year. Uh, I'd go with James Cleverly. He start, started the year uh, swanning around the world, being, by all accounts, a reasonably successful foreign secretary in a pretty good job. And then he finds himself in the worst job in government, impossible job, home secretary. And then he gets pinged for uh, referring to Stockton, in the in the northeast as a not a very nice place in the commons i did not would not then what are you calling me sir uh, so he's uh from somebody who hadn't really done anything much wrong he's he's gone down a very long snake hasn't he 
Very good. Alice, who was your loser of the year? I think I'm going to give a triumvirate of women, actually. So I thought Liz Truss's best friend, Theresa Coffey, probably the worst DEFRA secretary we've ever had, to be mm. honest. You're just throwing comments at me, uh, Kay. Uh, she is gone. So has Nadine Doris, who hasn't sold any of her books. So uh, I think maybe that's a good thing. Uh, no, I, d I don't think I'll be reading the book. I mean, Nadine is a, is a, is a very um, successful author of fiction, uh, and I'm sure people will see this book in that light. And also Suella Braverman, who managed to step on a guide dog. I, I don't think any dogs were harmed in the filming uh, of my visit, but let me just issue for the record an apology to all dogs. Uh, when she was at the Tory party <laughs> conference. And so I think probably the loser is the guide dog who was very well behaved, didn't squeal. Yeah. But um, I'm not sure I would want her heel going into me. I actually went and did some investigative journalism when that photo emerged of her standing on the guide dog. And I went and tried to you know, ask the people at the guide dog stand if she really had stood on the guide dog. And they said there was no evidence and the dog didn't, didn't react in any way. And I just thought, well, that's maybe because the dog was worried it would be put on a flight to Rwanda. <laughs> <laughs> and the dog would be trained not to do anything, wouldn't it? She chose the guide yeah, dog. Yeah, it's the guard dog. It's highly trained. It's the guard dog. Well. Libby, who was your loser of the year? I mean, you know, Alice has kind of said it all, really. It's poor old Nadine and my dear MP, Therese Coffey. Although, to be fair... She's my MP, remember? I, I have feelings about the Suffolk. She's been appalling about sewage in Suffolk. Well, it's not just the sewage, it's the fact that they want to carve through the entire coast, you know, for to, to bulldoze through uh, some infrastructure stuff, which actually could perfectly well go down to the brownfield sites, you know, on, on the, the Thames estuary. But, it's, you know, she, she sort of, she, she kowtowed to the Scottish um, uh, power profiteers who want to put up enormous substations and has just been, as, a, as an MP, hopeless. Um, but I think nearly everybody could, well, not, not everybody, but a lot of people could name their MP as the loser of the year. I know, I have a tractor MP, that's quite good. Funnily enough, it was tractors that I was looking at. I think tractor MP comes quite high up. <laughs> and don't forget, you can read the very best political analysis every day in The Times and The Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Big Thing. Yes, it's Spirit in the Archive. Is that how the song goes? Is that how the song on? goes, yeah. I love it. I'll miss it. I'm going to go to the place that's the best. That is the Times Archive. Lara Spirit is here. She's come straight from the archives where she's been locked up all year. <laughs> guiding us through every general election since the 1832 Reform Act, uh, which expanded the franchise, which is especially good news if you're a middle-class man, uh, which we all are. Uh, but today, Lara, we're going to find out what you've learned during all those hours spent grubbing through the Times Archive and a little bit of what the parties can learn from history. So these are Lara's lessons. 
so uh, we're kicking off. What's number one, Lara? On the lessons? Yes. Is it that ministers don't usually go early? Or no, is it a it's different the, word? the polls can be wrong. The polls can be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Am I telling you your lessons? Uh, well, you're telling me it's which fine. order my, my five, lessons five, five, are five. in. So we're kicking off. Uh, so basically, explain. So, so since the beginning of the year... We start, what, we, why do we start the with The very beginning of January, we started with 1832 because, as you've just indicated, there was a partial, though not complete, uh, expansion of the franchise uh, and something resembling the parliamentary democracy and election system that we have today, which felt like a fitting time uh, with that Great Reform Act to kick off. Uh, and ever since, every single week on a Monday, uh, we have looked at how each successive election since then has been covered by the Times in the Times archive because the Times uh, has lasted that entire period and has covered every single one of those elections, albeit very differently. Uh, so how many is it all together? It's about 50. I'm not sure how many odd. it is all together. Anyway, we struggled to fit them all in this year. <laughs> so, uh, Lara's lesson number one, the polls can be wrong, uh, which is, you know, good news for Rishi Sunak. Uh, so let's uh, just remind ourselves a couple of times when the polls are wrong. This was 2015. But here it is, 10 o'clock, and we are saying the Conservatives are the largest party. If this exit poll is right, Andrew, I will publicly eat my hat on your programme. Have you got a hat? Uh, no, but I'll get one, especially. <laughs> so, uh, to be clear, the opinion polls had put Labour ahead in 2015. The exit poll uh, showed the Tories uh, doing much better and the Lib Dems facing wipeout. Uh, Paddy Ashton, I think, later wears a chocolate hat. And then, in, uh, in 2017... Uh, and what we're saying is the Conservatives are the largest party. Note, they don't have an overall majority at this stage. Jeremy Corbyn won an enormous victory in 2017. No, he didn't. The he didn't. Yes. The biggest victory that Labour had won in a generation. No, he wasn't. He lost. The he didn't become Prime Minister. Uh, so that was... That was irresistible. That was the, uh, the Tories. Uh, obviously, yeah, we'd been miles ahead in the polls. Uh, Theresa May called the election in 2017 uh, uh, and lost the majority, which was such a bad result um, uh, that some Labour supporting people, including, as we heard there, Noam Chomsky, uh, still think Jeremy Corbyn won. So I suppose the two <laughs> things here, like, sometimes the polls are just wrong, as in 2015, they just were overstating Labour support, and sometimes the polls change. Exactly. And exactly. actually the Tories did pretty well in the local elections in 2017, which was partly what gave... Uh, um, Theresa May the, the impetus to think that she could she could call that that snap election exactly so and I think um, that's an important distinction because uh, election campaigns although looking at the number that we've covered don't seem to have fundamentally changed that many uh, of the elections that we've looked at they do and that's an important distinction on the polling but I think 2015 and 2017 although there are many uh, previous examples of where the polls have been uh, slightly off 2015 and 2017 are such good examples because especially uh, when you look at the front page of the times they completely shape the way that we covered and think thought about those elections up to and including on uh, polling day if you take 2015 as an example the idea that the conservatives would win an outright majority was declared by the times to basically be uh, you know so left field that it wasn't really seriously even considered on uh, the election day paper and actually much more important to the coverage of a number of publications ahead of that was who were the power brokers who were the people that would be negotiating uh, in this in the circumstances where no party would be clear of a majority what would happen in those situations uh, and so it's always fascinating then to read the following edition of the paper where of course everything has changed so quickly and I think uh, apart from uh, in elections there aren't really that many examples when as journalists we work where one edition of the paper is so markedly different to the next and it seems like political reality just changes so quickly 
and 2015 and 2017 are, are very good examples of that. The other counterpoint, I'd say, is the 45 election, where the polls were right and everyone ignored them because polling was still quite... Uh, it is infancy. And they ignored the by-elections yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, the, the other, that's the other thing that is interesting looking at this is that actually uh, I think we do sometimes forget about the significance of, uh, of by-elections, but they are considered, especially by the times in the run-up to election, yeah. to be another kind of kind of polling uh, in, in essence. And 45 is a good example of how in the, in the run-up to that. And also just people now say, oh, it's groupthink or it's herd mentality of the media. You know, that, I mean, it's, it's just human nature that people start all sort of slightly fall into that trap and sometimes just a good good reason for us to check ourselves uh i suppose right let's move on then we are moving on to uh, lara's lesson number two uh, despite all the speculation prime ministers don't usually go early this is a i think quite an important or at least the most relevant lesson for today's politics people in westminster are obsessed with this question of whether we will see an election in the autumn whether we could see it as late as january 2025 which is the latest of course that we're able to see it uh, which, or is it today or yesterday was the was the one year to go that they have to prorogue parliament oh brilliant yeah so so this time next year we definitely won't have parliament sitting if there you know is the last moment when so we are firmly into election year yeah, yeah, yeah. um and of course, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not Rishi Sunak will go early. There are loads of theories about what the small boats issue means for the logic or otherwise of a possible May poll. Um, huge amounts of, you know, inches of newspaper columns and stories devoted to this question of whether Rishi will go early. Uh, I actually think when you look at uh, the elections that we've covered, there's always been a lot of speculation uh, in the period where you are allowed to pick your election date, uh, it should be said, uh, for people uh, want whether or not Prime Ministers will go early on this. And actually, usually, if you're behind in the polls and if you're behind on the metric of who would make a best Prime Minister, it's so vanishingly rare that you would take the jump and go for it, let alone if you're 20-plus points behind in the polls. There are some exceptions to this that are quite interesting. Uh, the most interesting, I think, is Harold Wilson in 1970. Uh, and this is interesting because... He, I mean, people were expecting an October election, which is, of course, in some ways what we're expecting now with Rishi Sunak. Uh, and Harold Wilson ended up going in June, which he thought would wrong foot his Conservative uh, colleagues uh, and would lead Labour, who were ahead in the polls at this point, to a victory. Uh, so that's not completely comparable to the current situation. Uh, and he lost. Well, in fact, we've got a little clip. The Conservatives have now gained enough seats to make it extremely likely that they will have an, abs uh, an overall absolute majority in the House of Commons. Certainly. To all intents and purposes, you've now given up any hope. Of well, I think the figures speak for themselves. And I suppose there, that's, there's also a difference between, uh, you know, the, the Boris Johnson obviously went early. He only became Prime Minister in July and then called an election. But you, the circumstances were very different uh, because of all the, the Brexit shenanigans and, and wanting to get Brexit done. And it just doesn't feel like, we're in the, you know, there was some people who think, oh, we could get Rwanda done, could become a new election uh, slope but it's yeah. just not the same thing the country's not gripped no unless unless we get ourselves in such a constitutional model that it seems kind of essential that we do but i think brexit isn't comparable in that way and again it's felt pretty irresistible to some people to declare that it's been very very similar uh in recent weeks over that rwanda fight but i don't think it has quite the same constitutional urgency as 2019 but you're right that 2019 is a, is a good exception okay what's lama's lesson number three it hasn't always been about sound bites, is lesson three. In fact, we've got a little clip. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution. And I tell you, education, education, and education. 
It is time to get Brexit done. I said I would stop the boats, and I meant it. I mean, it, the interesting thing is, again, it's a reminder that actually you sound like they go back quite a long way. Uh, but I suppose they've just got shorter and shorter and shorter that maybe a, you know, a spirited speech becomes, a sentence becomes... Exactly. And I think that the white heat of technology there, which was mm. Harold Wilson, his first time in the 60s uh, being elected as prime minister, that's a good example of a speech that was actually written not with a huge amount of consideration beforehand. I think he stayed up overnight to write it. Uh, it was a speech. It wasn't just that little soundbite. But uh, that first administration of Wilson's became so connected to this idea of technology, but also to planning. Uh, and then in 70, when he lost, people said, oh, well, it was you know partly as a result of the loss of this vision of planning. That was one of the big reasons why we lost. And I'm not sure actually if you go back to that time that that would have been exactly how they expected that to go. Uh, but definitely this has a, I think, is is deeply connected to uh, the introduction of wireless, to the ways that we begin to cover elections. We see wireless for the first time, I think, in 1931. Uh, from then on, obviously, election coverage becomes a bigger thing. But, you know, we did the elections uh, for most of the 19th century. Uh, and the interesting thing about that, I think there are two things. First is, a lot of speeches in Parliament are very relevant to the election. Parliament, I think, just generally has a bigger part to play uh, during electioneering in this. And that's partly because when people made speeches, not just in Parliament, but then on the campaign trail and the Midlothian campaign uh, by Gladstone uh, in the 1880s is a, is a good example of this. Those speeches in the Times and elsewhere would be covered often in full. So it wouldn't be that journalists like you or I would pick out uh, the most eye-catching of phrases that we thought was a kind of neat summation of what people were saying. Uh, but often you would give, or you would find a huge amount more space for the broader messages of uh, these politicians. And actually their kind of uh, oratory skills were much more important, I think, to uh, electioneering, at least insofar as, you know, we would we would cover the full yeah, whack yeah. of them often. But it's also a reminder that actually, you know, in the, in the dim and distant past, you could go around the country and basically make the same speech <laughs> everywhere. But once they start, you know, yeah. Gladstone in particular, you know, but tailored his speech because he knew the papers like the Times were going to report him every day. Yeah. So you had to find a different way of saying, I'm good and the other lot are rubbish. Yeah. You know, lib yeah, liberals are great and Disraeli's a nightmare. <laughs> in order for it to be reported every day. So I suppose that's, you know, and that's essentially what still happens now. You, you know, that the... the the stump speech needs something else in it, otherwise it's not going to be it's not going to be covered. Right, next, uh, next of Lara's lessons. The next of my lessons is that uh, parties do usually recover eventually, and I say this because <laughs> there's a there's a lot of coverage in the Times and elsewhere after uh, those elections that are deemed completely apocalyptic at the time for the party that has had uh, the most serious drubbing, uh, and almost always uh, they make some form of recovery, even if it takes quite a long time. Okay, so we've got some examples of this. We're going back to 1983 in Michael Foote. Britain cannot afford to continue with the present policies. We cannot afford to continue with policies of mass unemployment. Uh, and obviously uh, they then went on to a terrible uh, defeat. The 1983 Labour manifesto dubbed the longest suicide note in history. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this uh, manifesto was, um, I think any of us would look at it now, you know, NATO withdrawal, um, deep scepticism about membership with Europe, which at the time was, you know, quite polarising, but uh, really a sense that Michael Foote uh, was not a strong uh, Labour leader during this time, that at this point the party was bitterly divided, not just on Europe, but uh, on union relations and other issues as well. Uh, and although he was a towering political figure, this was certainly one of the uh, more apocalyptic uh, results for Labour. And after this point in the Times and elsewhere, there were serious reflections about whether or not the Labour Party 
party would ever walk towards being yeah. a, a a kind of credible party of government in the future. And many people looking at Foot's leadership of the Labour Party uh, and saying that actually it didn't look like a kind of big national party of government. It looked like a kind of bitterly divided one that at the mo- at that moment was led by somebody that had views that you would probably consider to be quite on the fringe of what is electorally acceptable to the vast majority of people. But you're right there. All those apocalyptic predictions about, oh, we might never get into government again. I mean, it did take them 14 years to 97. <laughs> Then you had it was the a long to- march. But then you had the Tories, you know, in 97, wondering if they'd ever get back. Even in, even the Labour Party in 2019, you know, the, 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 the apocalyptic predictions that Labour would never get close to government. And now, yeah. you know, look at the polls now. In fact, talking to 2019 as well, this was, uh, I don't need to remind you, the Lib Dem leader, Joe Swinson, she was going to be Prime Minister, she said, uh, talking after the 2019 election. This winter election has been dark in more ways than one. Yeah, it was indeed. She lost her own seat. Uh, the Lib Dems are left with just 11 MPs. Uh, but, you know, there's a reason why the Lib Dems have been compared to cockroaches that can survive as a nuclear winter. <laughs> you know, they keep they keep plodding on. And again, you know, now looking like they, they could make, you know, significant gains like they have done in the by-elections. Uh, and actually, William Hague, in, I thought this was quite interesting for a man who... So he picked up after 97 uh, and the, the, the drubbing that the Tories got and all the predictions the Tories might be permanently out of power. Then uh, he was on Times Radio last week, again talking about how the Tories could be permanently out of power. There's no guarantee of ever coming back. You know, the Conservatives have come back every time in the past for 200 years, but no guarantee politics will change a lot over the next 20, 30 years. The world will change a lot. So it's interesting that he's even leaning into exactly... But you're, you're saying, by and large, he's wrong. It's been a long time since we've had a political party disappear it's from been a- the absent significant splits right i think if you look um over the last 200 years it's usually when a great issue divides the yeah. party such that there are massive splinters off of it that you would see uh, the the final end of it yeah. uh, but you know i think um william hayes prediction there obviously within the context of a kind of bitter row over this Rwanda bill and, and a significant portion of his MPs who seem content at least uh, in his view to uh, throw the whole thing away um, kind of making perfect the enemy of the good in their view over this bill It is amazing actually when you think it was 100 years this month that the Labour formed their first government yeah. and just how how long those the two main parties have endured despite all the predictions that they, they would never win yeah? uh, Finally let's talk biscuits <laughs> What's your fifth lesson from the archive? Um, my first lesson from the archive, which is obviously relevant to all main party leaders at the moment, is to stay away from women with gingerbread on the campaign trail. Um, and this is because, and unfortunately we don't have audio of this moment, which is really sad, but um, Gladstone, of course, great... To be clear, it's not because we can't find it, it's because it no, predates sorry. <laughs> smartphones. And much else besides. Um, This is because um, Gladstone, when he was uh, running for Prime Minister again in 1892 in June, he gave a speech in Chester um, and he was hit by some gingerbread in his eye by a woman who he described as middle-aged and bony. Um, And he was really upset about this and it actually lacerated the pupil of his only serviceable eye. So it was pretty serious. He was partly blinded um, and I think fortunate given the eye patch he had to wear around for the remainder of the campaign that uh, there wasn't a huge amount of filming going on uh, at this time in the late 19th century. Um, 
because he was wearing, I think, dark mafia-like spectacles um, and wasn't able to read for a few months. And the interesting thing about this is that uh, in history, we think about it, uh, for those of us who still think about that kind of great act against Gladstone, um, as being uh, from a woman who didn't like him and wanted to attack him. And actually, there's a letter in the Times the day after this attack from someone in Chester saying, actually, he knows the woman who threw this gingerbread um, and she actually is really mortified and <laughs> devastated because she's a Gladstone superfan, basically. So this I didn't mean to throw it. Frederick Dresser said, uh, Sir, uh, friends of Mr. Gladstone will be glad to know the lady who threw the gingerbread at him in Chester is one of his most ardent supporters. Far from intending to insult him, she only attempted to give some outward expression of her frenzied admiration. I could give you her name and address, but she's so utterly overwhelmed with the consequences of her reckless <laughs> zeal that it would be cruel to add to her sufferings. Yours truly. Frederick Dressel. It's a great letter. It's a great yeah. letter. So that some, t- some top advice there. The polls aren't always right, or at least they can change. Uh, prime Ministers don't usually go early. It's not always been about the sound bites. It's never quite as bad as predictions, and stay away from women-wielding gingerbread. We're now joined by uh, The Evening Standard's Jack Kessler, who has, and I seem to have played some part in this, become addicted to watching old election night broadcasts. Good evening and welcome to BBC Television's coverage of this razor's edge, Election 74. Good evening. Well, it looks like being one of the most exciting election nights ever, with the possibility of a very close result and the prospect of Britain having its first woman Prime Minister at the end of the night. Good evening and welcome to our election results programme. Good evening and welcome to election night. It's all over at last. The polling stations closed just a moment ago. So, uh, Jack, the last time we spoke, you'd watched 1992 to 2019 in reverse order. You went backwards um, and you couldn't get enough of it. Before we start, um, I think it's important that we blame you for this situation. (laughs) Well, you and norovirus, because you gave me the idea... I didn't give you norovirus. No, you didn't, to be clear. (laughs) You gave me the idea to go back further in time, which I had no intention of doing. And then norovirus gave me 48 hours to start watching um, 87, because I had nothing better to do. Yes. So, um, what, wh- why? <laughs> well, I mean, it's time-consuming. Um, <laughs> and, and you had plenty of time on, your ha- time on your hands. Yes, but also it's really fun, and, and Lara's just given some of the grand sweep of history stuff. I'm going to stick purely to trivialities, yes. if I may. So, things I absolutely loved. So... The name Barney Hayhoe. Every time <laughs> someone said Barney Hayhoe, and it's just and who, like, who is Barney Hayhoe? So he was an MP in um, West. It doesn't really matter who he was. What matters? <laughs> he was an MP. He was an MP. Sorry, should we get? Um, but there's 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 plenty of other um, amazing stuff. So the Dutch government welcoming Thatcher's election in '79 on the basis that she was the more pro-European prime minister um, was quite good. Um, But the striking thing is how little changes. So if you wanted to get away from war in the Middle East and an energy crisis at home and a conservative prime minister or rather leader who um, wasn't particularly good at communication, you wouldn't necessarily watch either 74 election. Um, But but it's interesting that. So how did it change the the way that election nights played out? Because it was all BBC ones that you've watched because they've got this sort of amazing archive. Um, how, how did it change in terms of technology, in terms of presenters? Did you have favourites? 
Um, well, the technology is obviously a big one. The swingometer was literally um, a piece of felt or, or something that um, would, would would move across um, a wall rather than. Well, I know um, I know all about the swingometer because I've written about it in my book. <laughs> so it was born in the fifties. David Butler wrote to the BBC. He was a sophologist, mm -hmm. and he wrote to the BBC and said, "I've got this idea for a speedometer type device." But I won't have any Robert Mackenzie. Um, yeah, that... erasure. <laughs> well, no, so the, he then then played a part in, but it was David who came up with it. Mm. He then attributed it to other people. Oh, it's so in terms of things moving on, I mean, the extraordinary thing is that, uh, for all intents and purposes, women don't exist for a very <laughs> yeah. long time. Um, and when they do, it's very obvious that they're women. So the men are just, they have names, and the women are misses. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why it occurs to me why all prime ministers basically were prime minister or... Blair or Callahan, but Margaret Thatcher was always Mrs. Thatcher, and yeah. I never quite understood why. And it's just because she was a woman, and it was very important to make that clear. To make that, to make that distinction. Do you enjoy watching election nights, Lara? Yeah, those like I haven't gone back in time. Oh, you should. But I am finding it. I am finding it. The more Jack talks about it, I'm thinking I might want to. They're really good. And because when I was writing the book, I spent <laughs> a lot of time trying to find like particular things that I knew had happened on election night, and you just get sucked into it, and suddenly you're really. Well, I've got to stay another ten minutes yet because we're going to get the result from North Devon. Or uh, and actually, some people who I'd, who I'd never sort of seen before, um, uh, um, Marcia Williams, who is Howard Wilson's sort of you know, I don't know what you call her, Praetorian Guard, special advisor, um, cropped up a lot. I think it was the seventy nine and election. She was sort of on various panels. It's just sort of people you'd sort of forgotten. People who thought of being so huge, they'd never have sat down on a panel on TV. But of course they did. You know, huge political names all wanted to be on the TV, trying to set again set the the message for election night. This it, it's so rich with narrative that you you find yourself. I'll I'll stay up for if there is an exit poll. I'll stay up for the exit poll, and then I'll stay up for the first result, wherever that may be. And then you've got to stay in because oh my god, it turns out that Harold Wilson's actually going to lose. And then there are. Other things, I, I promised I would stick to trivialities. So in it, it struck me, I think in, this was 87, or maybe it was 83, um, but that David Owen was just too sort of leading man handsome to break the mould of British politics. I think he's still <laughs> the best looking politician in the country. He's got great hair. Tremendous. But then so is Ben Bradshaw. That's a whole separate thing, who's got the best <laughs> hair in politics. Um, and what other, what other stats have you been... Um, pulling out on this about nobody went from being the minority to having a majority it's amazing we think of our electoral system as you know you throw throw the government out um and it, it happens a lot but it, it not since 1970 has a um opposition party um where where the government where the government has a majority is replaced by another government of a different party with a majority so we think of you know surely it happened in 97 but of course the Tories had lost their majority by the time of the 97 election Labour had lost their majority long before the 79 election came so we were talking earlier about Keir Starmer and this 20-point lead and why would Sunak um, call an election that's amazing stuff there. so so a, a government with a majority hasn't been kicked out since 1970 essentially yeah that's amazing. So, yeah. so if 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 Starmer achieves a majority of one, yeah. he'll be the first opposition leader to do that and kick out another government majority since 1970. Amazing. Are you going to go back further? So, I have started on 
1970. Um, so it, it's funny because obviously it's, it's nice to watch people get younger because the alternative <laughs> normally happens, except, <laughs> except on, honestly, there's, there's, there's been a mess up in the Matrix and no matter how far back you go in time, Sir Alan Beath does not get younger. <laughs> and I know that sounds really superficial and, and damn it, it is superficial. But um, I, I don't know how it happens. It's true though. It's like he's Lib Dem MP. Now peer, I think. Certainly Sir Alan Booth. I don't know whether he's a, he's a peer or not. Yeah. Um, so how far back does it go? How far back could you go? It certainly goes back to 45. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I fear at some point it may turn into um, a radio experience. A radio experience. Well, we, we'll get you back. We'll need to do another three or four. <laughs> I, although I, I accept no responsibility for this addiction. Thank you for listening to Politics Without the Boring Bits. If you've been with us for a while, why not tell your friends about us in person or better still do it on social media. It is the perfect Christmas present because it's free. Do get in touch with your thoughts and comments. You can email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye.